A good Tuesday morning to you and welcome to Real Talk. I'm Ryan Jesperson and we're thrilled to have you here at 8.30. Coming up uh, in just a couple minutes, we're going to talk to Emmy Award winning ESPN anchor uh, Jen Latta, who's going to join us. Uh, a great football story over the weekend with uh, Sarah Fuller uh, making history for Vanderbilt on Saturday. We've been keeping an eye on a few pretty inspiring stories here, and we're going to be getting to those a little bit later on in the broadcast. Andrea Wu is also going to join us uh, from the Globe and Mail. We're going to take a look at what Vancouver City Council did, what it's been discussing under the leadership of Mayor Kennedy Stewart on the on the decriminalization file. Vancouver's City Council making a unanimous uh, decision to essentially ask the federal government for an exemption to federal law when it comes to drug possession. We're going to dig into that today. We're going to talk about the opioid crisis. We're going to take a look at public health and public health uh, trust, rather, public trust in health delivery. That's coming up with doctors Hakik Varani and Elaine Hishka uh, coming up in the 9 o'clock hour. Plus, my brother's going to join us today from Vancouver, Kyle Jesperson, a program director at Insight, uh, which has been leading Uh, the way in Canada when it comes to supervised consumption services on Vancouver's downtown east side for for the better part of 20 years. Kyle's going to join us right around 10 o'clock today, and we've got a whole lot of ground to cover. So we'll be taking a look at, of course, the uh, the fiscal update from the federal government yesterday by way of Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland, her first in that role and and the first real uh, quasi-budget that we've seen from the federal government really since COVID began. And so we're going to get to some of those details. It's a record-setting deficit. It's, it's, a, it's a mind-boggling deficit. If you were to pull this outside of the context of COVID-19 and see a federal deficit of $381 billion, you're, you're, you'd have synapses misfiring and you'd have smoke coming out of your ears and you wouldn't be able to process it. It would not compute. But, of course, these are different times, completely different times And so we'll take a look at what that means for Canadians, what it means for you, where the government's placing its priorities. That announcement made yesterday afternoon after we went off the air here on Real Talk. You know who's keeping us on the air? One of our uh, sponsors that we're so grateful for is our presenting sponsor. It's Bitcoin Solutions. And every morning off the top of the show, we're proud to say good morning to you on their behalf. They're a local company based out of Edmonton, but they have Bitcoin Solutions ATMs all across Canada. So if you're looking to safely and with confidence and by the way, easily buy or sell Bitcoin, if you want to get into the cryptocurrency game, but you have questions, you don't know much about it. All you know is they're writing about it on Bloomberg and some of the big American investors, the high profile ones are starting to get on board, including Jack Dorsey from Twitter. Check out Bitcoin Solutions. You can visit the sponsors uh, link on our website, ryanjesperson.com and learn more there about Bitcoin Solutions. Sam, let's get her going. Real Talk starts now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We're going to be talking to uh, Jen Latta from ESPN coming up uh, in just a couple of minutes. I want to talk to her about the story of Sarah Fuller, uh, an accomplished uh, soccer player, who made history uh, as one of the women breaking barriers in sport for Vanderbilt on Saturday. Jen's uh, covering that for ESPN. That's where she's an award-winning, an Emmy award-winning anchor. Uh, That story is coming up in just a few minutes. We're also going to take a look at the announcement from the federal government yesterday. Sam, would you tee up that video for me? Uh, Deputy Prime Minister, uh, Canada's Finance Minister, Christia Freeland, uh, yesterday in delivering this uh, fiscal update, a detailed fiscal update that was her first 
uh, in this role. And, and there's obviously a lot to get into, a $381 billion deficit. That's what the government's looking at. And of course, all of this leading up to a more robust budget, you would expect. Uh, this is uh, Deputy PM. This is Canada's Finance Minister, Christian Freeland, yesterday. I say this both as a working mother and as a finance minister. Canada will not be truly competitive until all Canadian women have access to the affordable childcare we need to support our participation in our country's workforce. Bravo. Deputy Freeland, uh, PM Freeland there uh, outlining one of the government's uh, priorities. It's, there's a fiscal stimulus package up to $100 billion involved in this. We're fixing things on the fly here. This is the intrepid Sam Brooks. <laughs> say hello, Sam, to everybody. we got a, a, a monitor here in front of me so I can see what we're talking about. But the monitor, uh, of course, conking out as soon as we go on the air today. We don't sweat the small things here, do we, yeah, Sam? You know, I'll, I'll take full responsibility for that one. Uh, I was testing some stuff yesterday, and I unplugged that monitor. Well, there you go. That's why it didn't work. Well, now it's working, and I've got desktop, so I just need program feed, and we'll keep rolling here. A $100 billion fiscal stimulus package, uh, including, I mean, and, and when you talk about a, a deficit of $380 billion, you start talking about a program that receives $1 billion and, and it, and it kind of sounds like peanuts in the grand scheme, but you have to think it's still a ton of dough. So a billion dollars for improved ventilation and training staff at long-term care facilities. There's an example. Now, how far does a billion dollars go across Canada? Uh, what does what an improved ventilation package look like in one long-term care center? Probably a ton. So I'm sure that this isn't going to completely address the issue. But it, it indicates a priority from the federal government, I think, to respond to a lot of the criticism and concern that Canadians have about the security of our loved ones in long-term care centers. Uh, it's unprecedented spending from the federal government, to be sure, of course. And another big thing that I know people are going to be paying attention to is the wage subsidy. The wage subsidy has been boosted again here, back up to 75%, which I know that uh, most people will, will, will assume or at least have some hope that this will allow employers, including small business owners, maybe like you, to keep their lights on. Uh, the most severe challenge that Canada has faced since the Second World War, said Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland yesterday in rolling this out, loans for tourism and hospitality. We know the sector has been hammered. Uh, what sector hasn't been hammered? I mean, unless you own Zoom or something like that. Uh, I think that most of the sectors have seen their struggles. Direct supports for arts and entertainment workers. That's another interesting one from the federal government. And rent relief for airports. Uh, though nothing really laid out yesterday from the federal government when it comes to helping out the big airlines. Uh, so that's a point of interest, uh, certainly, as well, to keep an eye on, on what the federal government will do for the big airlines. Uh, as of yesterday, by way of that fiscal update, nothing there. So that's something to keep an eye on as we move forward. We're also paying keen attention to what's going on provincially right now. The COVID numbers, uh, Alberta, again, uh, setting another record, not exactly the type of record you want to set, to say the very least. Alberta breaking, again, a single-day record for COVID infections yesterday with more than 1,700 active cases reported on Monday. 1,733 active cases reported on Monday. 
Another story that we're keeping an eye on uh, this morning, and of course, just because we may not be discussing something right out of the gates or just because our leadoff guest may not be touching on something doesn't mean it's not on our radar as of today. And by the way, welcome to December, everybody. On this December 1st, police in Alberta will be able to hand out what the government is calling stricter impaired driving penalties. Uh, here's the thing. It, it, it's kind of a judge and jury at the roadside type situation. Impaired drivers uh, says the government will be removed taken off the streets immediately. This is through Safe Roads Alberta. It's a new adjudication branch. First time impaired driving charges are going to be handled quicker outside of court. The goal, obviously, to free up the courts. Impaired drivers could face larger fines and lose their vehicle up to 30 days. So this Safe Roads Alberta initiative will allow drivers to pay their fees online, request more time to pay their tickets, or dispute their penalty or vehicle seizure. So that's something that we'll be keeping an eye on. Again, the government rolling that out. This goes into effect uh, December 1st. And probably the most important thing we can all take from this is, is the obvious one, which is just don't drink and drive, right? We can all agree on that. Don't drink and drive, especially we get into the celebratory season. Though, Sam, I think, I'm, th I'm thinking that the, uh, you know, a lot of times when, when police talk about, you know, holiday crackdowns for impaired driving or for check stops or those types of things, a lot of times they're talking about the holiday parties where, you know, people are getting out of hand, people are drinking and driving. You have to wonder, uh, and, and I hope this isn't coming across in some way as though I'm justifying that. I'm certainly not. I'm just saying I think that's why it happens more frequently. You have to wonder if, if de facto impaired driving incidents, let alone charges, are either dropping already or will be dropping as compared to last December's stats, considering where we're at with this pandemic, people staying in, people not socializing. I mean, is one of the flip sides that the roads are a little bit more safe? Uh, I'm I'm kind of in the point where, you know, I'll take any positive the pandemic will give us at this point. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's a pretty clear through line from from one of those to the other that uh, less Christmas parties le means less impaired drivers. Um, that doesn't mean they're going to disappear. And, and quite frankly, that doesn't mean people are not going to have Christmas parties. We know it's going to go on. We know there's going to be. Uh, there, there's going to be some problems over the holiday season, but uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you is that, you know, it's um, one thing I think that could be a real trap that we could fall into is, you know, we announced this new government program to try and curb impaired driving and we might end up with a situation of causation without correlation, right? Where the pandemic is what's actually keeping people off the road and actually keeping from people from driving. But then, you know, they get to thump their chest and say, hey, look at how amazingly this program worked. I'm not entirely sure if, you know, the data that we get this year from it is going to be the most valid for assessing it for future use. Yeah. Uh why don't we get to that uh, tweet from the premiers? This I was going to bring this up a little bit later, but but it, it looks like uh, Jen Latta might be having an issue connecting with us. The ESPN winning anchor out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, covering college football, American college football. We hope to have Jen joining us uh, in the next few minutes. If not, we're going to get to Andrea Wu from the Globe and Mail. Andrea has been covering the story of Vancouver City Council voting to to decriminalize possession of drugs. Now, this includes. Uh, or, or it essentially puts the impetus on the federal government, and Andrea will explain to us why, but the, the requirement is that Vancouver, the request essentially is that Vancouver exempt itself from federal policy. We're going to be talking to Liberal MP Nathaniel Erskine-Smith on Thursday morning here on the show. He'll be joining us live from Ottawa. Uh, this is something that he's been talking about for a long time. So where is the federal government's appetite on decriminalizing possession of all drugs? We'll talk about that coming up in 10 minutes with Andrea Wu. We'll talk about that on Thursday as well with uh, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. And, of course, we'll put that in front of Drs. Elaine Hishka and, uh, and uh, Hikik Farani. They're coming up uh, right around 9 o'clock just after our quick break for the headlines. Uh, take a look at this. This is something that a lot of people were talking about uh, yesterday. Um, 
I'm going to be honest with you. I, I hesitate to post stuff like this because this is the whole point of, of what this individual is in, endeavoring to accomplish with his tweets. This is the premier of Alberta's executive director of issues management. The guy creates more issues than he could possibly manage. This is Matt Wolf uh, discussing some of the coverage around these anti-mask rallies in Calgary over the weekend. Did you see this? People gathering to essentially, well, protest provincial directives, uh, really pretty loose directives, but provincial directives on masks. Uh, of course, nobody wearing masks. They're gathering in violation. The premier's executive director of issues management, 200 grand a year for this. Uh, quote, uh, read some of the outrage tweets and stories on the weekend's protest. Keep in mind, this guy is messaging on behalf of the premier of Alberta, right? And you've got you've got hundreds of people gathering without masks, uh, you know, wearing their Proud Boys jackets and their yellow vests and everything else, right? Uh, and, and they're gathering together without masks. You would think that the condemnation from the premier's office during a pandemic might be aimed at the hundreds of people gathering without masks. But no, instead... Sam, can you pop that back up for me there for a second? The, the Premier's Executive Director of Issues Management decides to invoke from months ago the, the, the global phenomenon that were the Black Lives Matter rallies, the demonstrations, including in Edmonton, where about 15,000 people gathered at the Alberta legislature outside. It's, an, it, it's a shit take is what it is. Uh, he says substitute... Black Lives Matter for anti-mask rallies and you got about and he turns it into a political thing with lefties and liberals and it and it really I mean myself as a white guy I've got my own take on it I can't even imagine how people of color feel about this I can't even imagine how people that were out demonstrating as part of these Black Lives Matter rallies in in response to you know George Floyd being murdered in cold blood on camera by a police officer while in handcuffs crying for his mama I can understand why people who would who would see centuries of oppression including a legacy of slavery in the United States and 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 us Canadians aren't squeaky clean either on this file I can see why some people might take issue with the top professional in the premier's issues management office deciding to out of nowhere nobody brought this up nobody put this in front of them nobody's talking about the black lives matter rallies but that's the direction that the premier's office is taking yesterday i'm curious to know what you make of that uh, you can use the real talk rj hashtag that's the best way to speak directly with the show is the real talk rj hashtag uh, by may of by way of my twitter uh, every morning is a, as a matter of fact uh, we tweet out our lineup so you get a good sense of who's coming up on the show between our kickoff live at 8 30 streaming on youtube coming to you live streaming audio on mixler or whether you're listening later in the day on our podcast which by the way remains the number one most downloaded podcast in canada six shows in today's show number seven and we're so grateful grateful for that you can use that hashtag to talk to us through the live broadcast you can also of course communicate with us uh, using that hashtag later in the day and we love to keep the conversations going I mean that's that's kind of the entire point isn't it we're going to talk to Andrea Wu in just a second Sam right now why don't we say good morning to a brand new sponsor on the show we're super excited today is December 1st which means that we're really proud to be kicking off our partnership with Alta Storage. Now, here's the thing. Alta Storage, a locally owned company, they're pretty stoked to be part of this. They're telling us they wanted to join this journey. They said, we want to be in on the ground floor and watch this thing grow. 
And that's pretty exciting to hear from a sponsor like Alta Storage. You can check out what they're doing online at altastorage.ca. They've got those frog box things. So, so if you're considering a move and you want to do it in the most eco-friendly possible way, if you could use some storage solutions, maybe while you're doing a home reno or figuring out your space solution. I know for a lot of people, this pandemic has has basically meant that they're reevaluating their entire living situation. They're reevaluating everything. Alta Storage has you covered. You can check out altastorage.ca for more on what they're doing. Uh, Sam, why don't we get right now uh, to Andrea Wu. We're excited to have her joining us. Uh, Andrea is a uh, health journalist for the Globe and Mail out of Vancouver following a really interesting story uh, under the uh, leadership of Vancouver's Mayor Kennedy Stewart. City Council, there voting unanimously to decriminalize possession of narcotics. But what does it actually mean? Andrea, kind enough to join us this morning. Uh, uh, Andrea, I can see the clock here in our studio, uh, 8.47 Mountain Time, which of course means it's it's not even 8 o'clock yet in Vancouver. We really appreciate you uh, getting up nice and early to talk to us. Welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for joining the show. Thanks so much for having me. This is uh, one of few times I've put on real clothes before noon. <laughs> Yeah. How is how is you before we get into the story you're covering, how has your job and what you do for, for Canada's national newspaper, how has it changed through the course of the pandemic? I assume you're working from home. What, what else has been different for you? Yeah, uh, most of us are have been working from home since March. Uh, it's just sort of been uh, an, an onslaught of all the news that is terrible. Obviously, we can't be ignoring COVID right now. Uh, but we've seen that exacerbate uh, other issues that have been quite substantial for years now, including the overdose crisis. Uh, so yeah, it's it's been a it's been a year. Let's uh, we're going to be talking to uh, uh, addictions uh, medicine specialist Dr. Hakik Varani and and Dr. Elaine Hishka from the U of A School of Public Health coming up in in just about fifteen minutes time, and then we're going to be learning a little bit more about insight in Vancouver from my brother Kyle around ten o'clock Mountain Time. He works there, Andrea, but but from a journalist's perspective, can you bring us up to speed on? on where the opioid crisis is right now in Vancouver. We know we've seen numbers of overdoses, uh, in particular in British Columbia and Alberta, um, but in British Columbia, really heartbreaking numbers. Where are those numbers at right now with regards to where they have been over the past few years? And, and what sort of a tangible impact can you tell that COVID, the pandemic has been having on influencing those numbers either way? Yeah, sure. Um, it's no surprise that uh, the numbers are very bad this year. In BC, we are, as of the end of October, we had something like 1,400 deaths. Uh, in Vancouver, it was uh, 320 or so, and I believe it's already the second deadliest year for overdoses in the city uh, on record, and that's with two more months to go. Um, it's been horrible. It's been absolutely horrible for years now. Um, and what we have seen with the pandemic is that things have gotten even worse. Uh, one of the theories is that drug supply chains globally have been disrupted. Uh, for example, uh, Wuhan, which was the uh, epicenter and where um, the new coronavirus was first discovered, uh, that was actually a, a major hub for fentanyl uh, production. Uh, so that was locked down for 70 something days. Uh, people turned elsewhere. Uh, An already volatile drug supply became even more so. Um, 
we saw extreme concentrations of fentanyl in uh, post-mortem tests um, here in BC. Um, uh, we're seeing more benzodiazepines. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, because of COVID restrictions, we've also had things like social services uh, be shuttered. Um, overdose prevention services in the city, your brother would know. Uh, in Vancouver Coastal Health, in any given week, we usually have around 6,000 6, visits. In the first wave, that dropped down to about 2,000. So more people were using alone, and then there are the harmful effects of isolation. It all just sort of comes together to create a, a really disastrous year for a lot of people, but for people who use drugs, it's uh, particularly so. I appreciate it, and I'm, and I'm not surprised to hear you use, uh, you know, the preferred nomenclature, as they would say. Uh, you know, people who use drugs. Andrea, I don't know about you, and I know that this is your beat, uh, essentially, you, you do a lot of work on the on the opioid crisis and on on mental health for the Globe and Mail. Uh, but but we can get so caught up, can't we, in numbers? And and we're guilty of this as well. I think when we're talking about COVID, uh, it, it, these are people. You talk about people who use drugs. When you talk about statistics, it can be so cold. We have to remind ourselves the numbers are people with stories, people with promise, people with human value, people with families. Yeah, I'm. I'm, uh, I'm really glad that you say that. Uh, we're, you know, it, it, April 2016 was when our uh, former provincial health officer Perry Kendall declared um, uh, an emergency here in BC due to overdoses. It's been, you know, close to five years since, and I think it's hard for people to feel that sense of urgency anymore when everything has gotten significantly worse. Progress feels excruciatingly slow, and we see record months after record months. And at some point, you wonder if, if people are still registering, if people still care, if people are still recognizing that behind every one of these numbers is a person with families, with friends, with stories, and, and they're dying at, you know, five people are dying in BC every day right now. It's it's I mean, it's just when you put it that way, uh, it's just hard to wrap your mind around. So, so let's talk about this step that Vancouver City Council has taken. I mean, it's 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 obviously significant because it's got a lot of people talking. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, any major municipal center, I mean, the city the size of Vancouver to see a, a unanimous vote on anything is somewhat remarkable, regardless of what it's about. Uh, but of course, some might also say, well, well, what does this really accomplish? Because it requires action from the federal government. It's, Vancouver doesn't have the ability to unilaterally impose policy like this. Andrea, can you take us into this story? Sure. Uh, so this was a motion put forward by our mayor, Kennedy Stewart. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. The motion was to uh, put a formal request into the federal minister of health to grant an exemption from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act to decriminalize possession uh, of, of all illicit substances within the city. So that went to council last week. It was uh, unanimously approved on, I believe, Wednesday. And so now they're in the process of drafting this letter to uh, Minister Patty Haidu, and then uh, it will be over to her office to, to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down. 
So this, I mean, has the, we're going to be talking to, to Nathaniel Erskine-Smith on Thursday. This is something that the Ontario MP has been talking about for a long time. He's not in a position necessarily to, to direct, to, I don't think, speak on behalf of the government here, whereas Minister Haidu may. But, but what would be your prognostication here, Andrea? What sort of an appetite do you think the federal government might have for this? I mean, it, it certainly gives the federal government almost an opportunity to, to release a test balloon over Vancouver and, and kind of see how it flies, right? Right. So the the exempt the exemption that they're seeking uh, is called the Section 56 exemption from the Act, uh, and so under that, the Minister of Health can exempt any person or class of persons or uh, controlled substance from the Act if she deems it necessary for medical or scientific purpose or it's otherwise in the public interest. Uh, we know that the federal government has repeatedly said that they will not decriminalize on a national level. But there are some indications that uh, this could go favorably for Vancouver. Uh, Patty Haidu's office after uh, Kennedy Stewart uh, put forward this motion said that they will work with Vancouver. They've been guided by advice from the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police and the Public Prosecution Service of Canada. And those are notable because those are two bodies that have um, either said that they support decriminalization, uh, the Public Prosecution Service has directed prosecutors in Canada to focus on more serious drug crimes, uh, those that affect public safety and to seek alternative measures for simple possession. So I think it's very notice uh, notable that her office released such a statement. And there are some indications that uh, she she may, may give this the thumbs up. Andrea, what's the what's kind of the vibe on the street? Like like how are how are Vancouver residents feeling about this? What are you picking up from? I mean, what are, what are people talking about? Uh, I mean, it's probably tough to tell. I was going to say at the bars and the coffee shops, but I know that nobody's really hanging out like that. But but what what, what do you get as the general consensus, the public opinion on this? Uh, I think I honestly feel like the tide is turning when it comes to discussions of drug policy. It's uh, really sad that it's taken something like 19,000 deaths in Canada over five years for there to be meaningful discussion. Uh, but when this was introduced at council, there was a, a full day of speakers and you heard from dozens of speakers who were overwhelmingly supportive of this. They recognize that, you know, it doesn't mean that drugs are going to be free and legal and uh, people aren't going to start using drugs because they're decriminalized. It's been very clear that uh, this has not been working, that uh, the criminalization of people who use drugs has created more harm. It's been ineffective. It's been costly. It's been really deadly in Vancouver and across Canada. Uh, so I, I think that there there is um, some appetite for change. Andrea, before we let you go, really appreciate your time. We're talking to Andrea Wu, who's a health journalist uh, with Canada's national newspaper, the, the Globe and Mail. You, uh, I know a lot of people look to your reporting for uh, context on on how British Columbia is doing uh, with regards to the COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, Alberta's numbers have been off the charts per capita wise, about triple of Ontario's. Uh, another new record. 
active infections, uh, active cases in the province of Alberta yesterday, 1,733. Uh, one of the real concerns, we talked to an ICU physician, Dr. Darren Markland, last week, and, and then Dr. Shazma Mathani, an ER doctor, and both of them giving us a sense of, of what Alberta's real ICU capacity is. It's one thing to see the numbers of, of ventilators and beds we have, but as the doctors pointed out, if we don't have the doctors and nurses and respiratory technicians, et cetera, then those beds are, are virtually useless. Uh, our ICU capacity estimated by these doctors around 200, and we've got about 100 Albertans in, in ICU right now due to COVID-19 alone. Uh, medical professionals are starting to wave the red flag here. I'm not trying to induce panic, but maybe we need to, to a certain degree. What's the reality? What's the landscape in British Columbia? Yeah, uh, BC did relatively well during the first wave and quite well over the summer until uh, mid-summer or so. Right now, like much of the rest of the country, we're seeing uh, a much rougher uh, second wave. We uh, had 40, just over 40 people die over the weekend, which was a, a really jarring number. Uh, there were some regional restrictions that were introduced and they were recently expanded to be province-wide. So I think everyone's just sort of waiting with bated breath in hopes that uh, this will bend the curve down a little bit. Uh, but it's it's not too dissimilar from what we're seeing in other provinces right now. Yeah. Andrea Wu, a health journalist at The Globe and Mail, uh, with her work primarily focusing on substance abuse, substance use, rather, mental health and Canada's overdose crisis. You can give her a follow on Twitter at Andrea Wu. Thank you for waking up early for us. We really appreciate it, Andrea. <laughs> Thanks for this. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. You bet. We're going to get to news headlines coming up in, in, in just about a minute, but we want to thank another one of the partners that ensures that our journey is ready for launch. We're really grateful to the team at Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider, powering the Real Talk RJ hashtag. Every single show we do, they offer internet, electricity, and natural gas in Alberta. A different option then the large incumbent, the big traditional utility companies, you know, the ones that grandma and grandpa used to pay every month, Park Power is doing it differently. Check out their social media. Check out their commitment to their communities. Check out how they share their profits with nonprofits right here in Alberta. They've been in business since 2013, and they've grown their business by offering low rates, awesome service, and again, that charitable profit sharing. You can learn more at parkpower.ca or... Check out the sponsors link at ryanjesperson.com. Uh, before we get to doctors Elaine Hishka and Hakik Varani, let's take a look at what's leading the headlines as we hit 9 o'clock on this Tuesday morning. As mentioned, Alberta breaking a single-day record for COVID-19 infections. That's 1,733 active cases reported on Monday. We also have an update by way of the federal government's finance minister, Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland yesterday. Her first detailed fiscal update in that role as finance minister. The government's first real numbers since the start of the pandemic. Take a look at the federal deficit. Now, again, it's apples and oranges, but 2019-20, the federal government ran a deficit just under $40 billion, $39.4 billion. The projected deficit for 2020-21 381 billion so just under a thousand percent increase of course in this covid era it includes uh, the wage subsidy boosted again back up to 75 percent uh, stimulus package worth about a hundred billion dollars and rent relief for airports but nothing yet for the major airlines we're also keeping an eye on alberta's new impaired driving laws that go 
into effect today through Safe Roads Alberta, which is a new adjudication branch. First-time impaired drivers, or at least those getting caught and charged for the first time, will be handled more quickly outside of court. Impaired drivers could face larger fines and lose their vehicle on the spot up to 30 days. And we'll have more on that in shows to come. All right, let's turn the page. It's it's a real pleasure. Sam, do we have both the good doctors set to go here? Awesome. I'm super excited about this. Uh, doctors uh, Hakik Varani and Elaine Hishka have, have been uh, widely recognized as experts in their field uh, when it comes to public conversations about addictions medicine, drug policy, public health as well. And I'm really thrilled that on the heels of their piece in the Hill Times, uh, we're going to talk about public trust in healthcare. Uh, as part of this conversation, they've co-written a piece that was published uh, just a couple of days ago uh, in the Hill Times. Also, obviously, uh, informed voices on the opioid crisis. And we'll certainly talk about the decision, that vote from Vancouver's uh, City Council. Let me get them on camera here as we extend a very warm welcome to doctors Elaine Hishka and Hakik Varani. Welcome to Real Talk and thank you for making time for us today. Hey Ryan, thank you and congratulations on the show. Thank you. Dr. Hishka, I'm not sure if you had a chance to to hear Andrea Wu. She was on just before the two of you, uh, a, a health journalist with the Globe and Mail. But I, I talked to her at length about Vancouver City Council's recent vote, which is an interesting one, also about the opioid crisis uh, Canada's overdose crisis and the impact that COVID has had on that. I know that this is something that you keep obviously a very keen eye on. And I know that, that uh, public health in this context is basically what's driving your professional career to this point. Uh, take us into your perspective on, on the overdose crisis right now in the era of COVID-19. Thanks, Ryan. And um, it's great to be here. So thanks for having us. Uh, I think, yeah, it's, it's really dismal is the best way to sum it up, the situation in Alberta right now. Uh, we we don't have a lot of good data because the overdose reports have been slow to be released um, by the provincial government. But what we do know is that in the first half of this year, uh, 449 people died of an overdose. And that's uh, well and above um, the previous record, which was around, uh, or by this time, which was around like 300, I have to take a look. But so it's like, you know, a significant, significant increase. Um, if, when you talk to people on the front lines, um, people that are working in supervised consumption services or doing outreach or working in the emergency departments, uh, it's really just been catastrophic to see such a dramatic increase in overdose um, and seeing way less support available in the community for people who are at risk of overdose. So whether that be, uh, you know, limitations on supervised consumption services, uh, less places to go if you're seeking um, support with housing or support with basic needs, uh, all of that is adding up and it's having a really serious impact. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about what is driving that. And certainly uh, we can't say 100% that we know, but um, all evidence is really pointing to the fact that the drugs that are in circulation right now are more toxic than they were before the pandemic. And that's because the pandemic has led to supply disruptions that are leading to new substances in circulation that um, are causing people to overdose at, a, at the worst rate we've ever seen. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pretend like I know what I'm talking about here, really. But but in layperson's terms, Dr. Hishka, is, is it that, that availability of, of, of fentanyl or, or whatever else uh, that, that those that are, you know, I mean, you can correct all my language, uh, Sam, we got something weird going on here on our screen, but, but all of my language here, uh, is, is going to be, you know, off, but people that are, that are, you know, making the drugs, cooking them up, uh, you know, they, they don't have access to, to some of the things, some of the ingredients, uh, that they would typically have. So they're, so they're adding in other, 
nefarious elements. They're they're cooking it with with things that obviously pose greater problems to people's health, and, and then unsuspecting users are ingesting them. Have I have I in layperson's terms characterized yeah. what's going on? Yeah, that's exactly right. So basically, you know, the illegal market operates in the shadows. And so we don't have, you know, full data on how it works, but we do know that um, borders, like it's obviously very sensitive to border closures and disruptions in um, traffic over borders. And so what we're seeing is traditional supply lines have been disrupted and people are scrambling to try to meet the high demand in the community for um, illegal opioids in particular, but other substances as well. And that's leading to all kinds of new um, mixtures in circulation. And so, for example, if you look at data out of BC, they're reporting in the, the toxicology that they're taking in postmortem, you know, coroner's um, investigations, that uh, the concentrations of fentanyl and other kind of novel synthetic opioids in people's blood is much higher than um, before the pandemic. And so, you know, people, there's no quality control in the illegal market. People don't know what they're getting. And as a result, um, they're very, very, very high risk of overdose. Uh, Dr. Varani, I want to, I want to kind of quickly run through your CV. So people get, get a sense of what your professional experiences look like. That obviously fuels your perspective, but you're, you're a clinical associate professor in the faculty of medicine at the university of Alberta. You're a specialist physician in public health and addiction medicine. And you also served as a medical officer of health uh, for Health Canada for 10 years, uh, including through the H1N1 influenza pandemic of 2009. So you've seen it all, uh, so to speak, or at least you've seen a lot. Uh, what observations can, uh, you know, when you look back on your experiences as a medical officer of health through H1N1, and then 10 years later, you're able to evaluate statistics and anecdotal evidence and talk to real human beings about their experience through this pandemic, what are some of the parallels that you're noting and, and, and what's different about this one 10 years later? I think the thing that jumps out the most, Ryan, is that we don't learn um, very quickly from our experiences. And um, that's really heartbreaking. We had the benefit of a couple of, I would say, dress rehearsals um, in SARS and in H1N1 to get our act together. Um, and we had the benefit of several really good commissions uh, analyze our responses to uh, H1N1 and to SARS and give us advice about how we might do a better job when uh, a bigger thing hits. This is the bigger thing and we're not doing a better job. Um, I, you know, if we look to jurisdictions that have made changes, public health reforms in response to things like SARS or the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, um, in, uh, in uh, East, Eastern Asian countries, um, we see that those jurisdictions that have enshrined public health leadership independence have performed extremely well. I mean, take Taiwan, for example, that has a central epidemic control um, arm of government that is um, arm's length from the rest of uh, political government and uh, took the bull by the horns as soon as uh, sounds of, uh, of a new coronavirus came out. Um, they're a population of about 25 million and have had seven deaths. Um, they've got Christmas. Um, they're going to beaches. They're going to restaurants and bars. Um, because uh, of a, uh, a strong public health response at the outset um, that was independent from political considerations that protected the public, and they're reaping the rewards of that, um, we've not seen that kind of public health leadership in, um, uh, in the COVID outbreak. And we have not seen that kind of public health leadership uh, across most of the country with respect to overdoses. Uh, and that's uh, tragic. I think one of the reasons why we see more of um, a press and more public outcry about the responses to the pandemic um, is because it's affecting a broader 
swath of people than, um, than the overdose crisis. And that too, I think is tragic. Um, by the end of this year, all told, we'll still have lost more people to overdoses in Alberta um, than we will have from, uh, from COVID. Although I catch myself as I say that because the numbers are going in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah. On both. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd hate to see you proven wrong, but I mean, either way, it's a disaster and it's devastating. Uh, let me ask you, uh, Dr. Vrani and, 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 uh, and Dr. Hishka as well, I, I want to kind of ask the question and then just get out of your way and let you get into this piece that you wrote for the Hill Times because it's powerful and there are a couple pretty strong assertions. And, and Dr. Vrani, you, you hinted at it uh, just there talking about how the pandemic, there are politics of a pandemic, like it or not. And it, it, it takes on uh, a different look or manifests itself differently based on the jurisdiction, whether, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, Hong Kong or Phoenix, Arizona or Edmonton. But your piece in The Hill Times, the two of you co-writing it, public health is not dependable without independence. Uh, Dr. Hishka, you first. I mean, let me leave the question vague and broad and wide open on purpose. Uh, why is independence or let me say arm's length from political influence so important for trustworthy public health delivery? Yeah, I think it's really key. Um, you know, public health officials are trained to take into account a whole range of evidence and understand the different hazards that exist, you know, that threaten po um, population health. And so when we encounter a pandemic or another major threat to public health, um, you know, when officials are formulating their responses, they're weighing all the different evidence. They're thinking about ensuring that um, whatever actions are taken are not disproportionately impacting, you know, vulnerable populations or one segment of the population specifically. And the best way for them to move forward is in an environment where they can be free to speak openly about their recommendations, what the evidence says, what the evidence doesn't say, what we don't know for sure. And also to feel that they can, um, you know, they don't have to take into account political lenses, right? They don't need to worry about um, whether this will be popular or play well in one part of the province versus another part of the province. They don't have to worry about if this is ideologically aligned with the general approach that the government of the day is taking. They really just look at the evidence and they want to see what is going to, you know, what is going to strike the right balance in terms of saving lives, protecting health, and um, getting us through this significant crisis, you know. And so when you have to layer over a political lens and you have to be accountable to elected officials, um, fully accountable. And you know, you have to say your messaging has to be in line with government talking points. It really limits your ability to, I think, to um, advise openly and transparently um, and, and steward you know, us through a very, very challenging time. Yeah, I thought it was it was powerful. Uh, it jumped off the page, and I don't know which of the two of you wrote this. I know uh, co-authoring a piece can 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 have its uh, advantages <laughs> and disadvantages. You got to kind of find a way to see eye to eye with your co-author, right? Because you're putting it down, and you both put your stamp on this. But uh, but but you write quote uh, premiers and ministers uh, may perceive a choice between population life expectancy and political life expectancy, the pressure to appease political bases and the most influential can distract from the task of protecting the most vulnerable. Not exactly profound and certainly true and probably pretty troubling for people as that slowly washes over them, Dr. Varani. Yeah. Um, I, so this is my first occasion actually, um, in so long of knowing her to co-author a piece with, um, with Dr. Heshka, 
Um, but that was my sentence. <laughs> um, I revised and, it. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you and, make, did you, um, did you take away a bit of its punch power, Dr. Heishka? Is that what happened? <laughs> I made it slightly less dramatic. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, she did, but I think we both, um, uh, we're both very concerned about how dramatic the results have been from the failure to enshrine public health independence in our system. And one of the most significant ways that I think it's affected uh, the pandemic response is its impact on public trust. Um, you know, the, the number of sacrifices that we're asking Canadians to make in the interest of the co collective good is substantial. Um, and, you know, we saw at the beginning of the pandemic that people were almost like soldiers in the way that they responded to the call for um, restrictions in the, in the interest of the public health. And, um, but if we keep asking and we keep asking and we keep asking for more and more, but we don't tell people what we know, um, or they come to know things by accident. Uh, and then there's a whole big to do about how to cover up the information that's come out. I, I don't think that's a position where we've earned public trust and where we've earned the right to ask, to continue to ask for those sacrifices. Now, don't get me wrong. I think those sacrifices are extremely important. But to demonstrate that we value the public's engagement, that we're invested in protecting their health, um, and that we're going to make good on the promise to protect uh, public health when we ask for those sacrifices um, is really, really important. You know? and, and I think that uh, I just wrote a Twitter thread um, yesterday about how it's peculiar to me that, that those governments who are using the, well, we're interested in protecting lives and livelihoods line um, seem less likely to actually put their money where their mouth is. I don't think you'll find uh, a public health expert in the country who doesn't support the idea of um, providing paid leave for uh, people who are self-employed or who work essential services in grocery stores or public transportation and that sort of thing. Uh, and you won't find a public health expert in the country who doesn't believe that when we ask people to undertake disproportionate hardship in the interest of public health, that the collective owes a duty to them. If we ask a restaurant to stop in uh, in-house dining um, and it, it affects their bottom line, we need to be there for them to support them. Um, and, and you know, with respect to teachers, if we're asking them to take on um, extraordinary risk or grocery store workers taking extraordinary risk, there needs to be, I don't wanna use the term hero pay, but, but that's the one that comes to mind. There needs to be a way to reflect that we understand the disproportionate burden that you are um, that you're bearing. But we have to demonstrate um, that we value their contribution and we need to demonstrate that we're trustworthy in what we're asking people to do. And that, that requires transparency. In politics, um, transparency, uh, you know, the standard of transparency is different from what we hold ourselves to in medicine. Informed consent is a big deal for us when we ask for um, permission to do pretty invasive interventions. So this is all uh, great, and, and it's informed perspective that you bring, the two of you, and, and it all makes sense, and, uh, and it sounds doable in theory, but you're also talking about politicians uh, demonstrating transparency. You're talking about politicians uh, surrendering power 
to a certain degree. You're talking about politicians uh, putting faith uh, and and meaningful support behind science. Uh, all of these types of things that uh, I hate to say it, but quite frankly, just aren't going to happen. So what is realistic? I mean, I hate to put it that way. Uh, Elaine, I know you kind of smirk because, you know, you and I have, have talked many times in many different capacities about public health and, and, and measures you'd like to see taken in policy that you know would have an immediate impact. But but sometimes that policy feels miles away considering the political process and what has to happen. So what's realistic for people to expect of you know, the Alberta government, the federal government, what would be on your, can I put it this way, holiday wish list? Thank you. Do you want to start maybe with the federal level and I can speak to the provincial? Yeah, I, I mean, the first thing I would say in response, Ryan, um, is that this is actually in the politicians' best interest to remove themselves from the from front and center of the pandemic response. Um, because the, some of the impacts um, that we need to consider are longer term than when the next election is. Um, and uh, some politicians are in peculiar positions where uh, even the unity of their own party or their own part of the political spectrum it may be threatened by some actions that they need to take. Um, and so some of them would prefer not to be saddled, I think, with the responsibility of those decisions. But one of the things that we've uh, suggested as kind of um, a temporary measure before we deal with this public health, um, uh, lack of public health independence once and for all, is that we suggested in the Hill Times paper to federal decision makers that they immediately establish an independent pandemic response observatory, which would be a place where you and your colleagues could go for consistent and regular reliable information on public health advice and what recommendations are being suggested to all of the jurisdictions. Um, a place that could evaluate and score the responses as they go along um, and could be kind of the, uh, the body that is, that is um, referred to uh, to justify the public health measures that jurisdictions take. To kind of deflect the responsibility of taking some measures that some people may not agree with, and if they perform well, and if the observatory uh, uh, endorses their performance, you can expect that a public um, adherence to po population health measures would be better. Dr. Hishka, you, you, you were talking about a, a provincial response. Do you, do you want to take it from there, and then I'll follow up? Yeah, like, just to add to what he keeps saying, like, obviously, we are in a bit of a conundrum now, and we have to you know, move swiftly and continue with the response as best we can. I think what the province could benefit from is increased transparency around data um, and also the inputs that are going into informing the decisions of elected officials. So we've heard a lot that um, cabinet is encumbered with these very difficult decisions. And I agree, they are very difficult decisions around which restrictions to put in place um, and weighing the different uh, potential negative impacts of those restrictions and, um, you know, and the potential health benefits of those restrictions. So if cabinet is making these decisions and there is an emphasis on using evidence to make these decisions, then that evidence needs to be made public. We need to understand what the trade-offs are. I think that will increase public trust in the decisions that are being made, and it will certainly go a long way to convince people to adhere to those decisions. And so, um, you know, we haven't seen modeling since the spring as to where our epidemic curve is heading, and that to me is extremely alarming. Uh, it's, I don't think it's going 
it's not going a long way to convince people that we need to take immediate action. I think if people could appreciate how dire the situation is, um, we might get more population buy-in to some of the measures that are being introduced. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's see, other things that could happen. Well, and you see, I mean, I know what what resonates with me, and and Doctor, you're you're alluding to this uh, directly. Is when I see a graph that just goes like this, uh, which is what we're seeing right now with hospital admissions and ICU admissions. I mean, I, I remember. I mean, put it this way: when when this show went on the air seven shows ago last Monday, uh, Alberta's ICU uh, admissions, uh, COVID related, were right around sixty. I think they were sixty one. And now we're hearing uh, numbers. And I don't, you know, I mean, there are some numbers being released by Alberta's official opposition today, and I haven't had a chance to review them because we've been on the air. Uh, but Rachel Notley's putting them out there. I've, I've seen other numbers that have ICU admissions around 100 to 120. Um, so they've doubled in seven shows. Uh, to put that into perspective, I mean, this 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 is a this is a red alert, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, and it's creeping up. Oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, and we shouldn't be relying on, you know, individual physicians who are working in a system to come forward with some of this, these numbers and to raise the alarm. Like, this is not a coordinated information campaign that the public can rely on. This is, you know, bits and pieces of information that are leaking out. And I think that is really damaging to public trust and to understanding, you know, where we should be going. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult position to put the public in that they have to comb through social media and decide for themselves, decipher what's reliable information. But you're right, um, we're creeping up to that 100 uh, number of um, ICU admissions just from COVID. And we've seen pictures of um, double bunking in ICUs, right, where you have two people in one ICU room. Um, and even if we're able to find spaces to put people, there's the question of whether or not you have um, the requisite number of skilled staff healthy enough um, and enough in our capacity and our search capacity to manage this this load. So you used the phrase earlier, waving a red flag. Um, I don't know how much brighter red this needs to be. Um, it's a very, very, very concerning uh, situation. You know, not to mention the impacts that it has on all other parts of the healthcare system and all other sectors, right? Um, we, we have uh, patients of my own who are at risk for, um, for fatal overdose, who they and their friends won't seek out care at hospitals after a non-fatal overdose in spite of the fact that they may well need support um, because they're frightened about whether or not they'll, uh, they'll contract COVID and also frightened about whether or not they'll just be turned away. As it is, um, you know, it's a stigmatized population of people. And now there's even more disincentive to seek out, uh, to seek out care. And this comes from this is why pandemics are so important to manage is because of the ripple effects it has on everything else. Uh, just to ask the two of you here live as we're doing this, do either, if, do either of you have to pull shoot at 930 or, or can, can we carry our conversation to the second half hour? I want to respect your time today. I'm good for a bit. Elaine, are you cool to keep going for a bit? Okay, great. Because I, I, I don't want to rush this conversation. And, and, and I guess, you know, you, you're, you, you talk, Hakeem, uh, you just, you, you talk about uh, people that would be hesitant to visit, uh, ERs or to, to report or to seek medical attention. Um, these, these are, uh, like you said, human beings, people uh, that, that would already be uh, experiencing many barriers, perceived or otherwise, to, to receiving health care, proper health care. Um, with, with the population so hyper-focused, and of course it's a good thing that we are, but with the population so aware of this pandemic, and talking about COVID-19, there are many other significant 
issues, uh, significant national conversations that, that need to be had, that demand to be had, that quite frankly are not being had. I mean, if you look back to less than a year ago and, and you talk about, for example, the Wet'suwet'en uh, situation with, with elected versus hereditary chiefs and railway blockades in Canada and talk about reconciliation, I mean, that feels like years ago. That was not years ago. And if you talk about, you know, the opioid crisis, uh, another example, uh, a public health story of, of huge significance when we talk about uh, the human loss, uh, when we talk about these preventable deaths, when we talk about public policy that's lacking, all of these conversations uh, to a certain degree, and I'm not necessarily saying in your academic or research or, or healthcare circles, but at least in the, in the sense of public conversation, these have all been put on the back burner. What sort of an impact is that having, Dr. Varani? I guess uh, we would need to be watching to know what what sort of an impact it's been having. And my concern is that we're not doing surveillance on, or at least not reporting on surveillance that's being done in um, in those major areas. That concerns me. That it, of course we have to be preoccupied with this pandemic, and it speaks to the need for us to have nipped it in the bud early on. As I said, you know, in Taiwan they're on the beach, um, and they're able to deal with other um, social issues. Uh, that are important to them. I think some of the things that you raise come down to the way that we manage inequities and that, uh, that um, is a story inside this pandemic as well. Um, we know that there are certain groups of people, age demographics that are more vulnerable to this virus and are, are more vulnerable to so many other um, health conditions and adverse outcomes. There are um, racial groups who are at a more significant risk because of probably a variety of socioeconomic factors. We just heard yesterday that people in Northeast Calgary of South Asian origin, um, we just heard yesterday, uh, you know, eight months into this pandemic in Alberta, that people in, in Northeast Calgary at higher risk, um, maybe it has something to do with the types of occupations that they're forced to go to um, or the supports that are unavailable to them. Um, to, to participate in a public health response and protect themselves. I mean, these are all issues that continue to rear their ugly heads, whether it's in a pandemic, whether it's in an overdose crisis. And we just heard yesterday about the experience of indigenous people of racism in, um, in the healthcare settings. So all of these things are, are huge matters that we need to be focusing attention on. And we just can't so long as we continue to see these numbers well into the thousands um, of, uh, of active cases of, of COVID. Just yesterday, um, we hit one in every 265 people in Alberta has an active COVID infection. How on earth are we supposed to deal with the fact that we still probably have about two or more people dying from, um, from opioid overdose in this province? It's just a mess. Elaine, where, where's your head at on that? Yeah, I think, you know, being a public health professor, like it's it's incumbent on me to point out that when public health performs really well and when it's resourced and when, you know, it's given independence, it public health, if we tackle these issues like head on, this is the bread and butter of public health. Like, of course, you know, we've, you know, there's the field is committed to, uh, you know, disease prevention, like in terms of like the, you know, clean drinking water and all these like basic public health interventions, but more and more, especially in, Canada and other similar societies, we're focused on preventing non-communicable disease. And so that's things like, you know, diabetes, heart disease, um, substance use and mental health conditions. And those at their root are often driven by inequality. And so public health is very interested 
in understanding what are the health impacts of inequality and how can we take address them as a society and what are the you know benefits of doing that and what are the trade-offs and so I think one way I'm hopeful about everything that's transpired is that I hope that people will recognize the potential for public health and for strong public health systems to identify these weaknesses in you know society and our social fabric and to take action to address them so the next time we have a whole society crisis we're not so ill-equipped to um, protect people and to save lives and so I think there's a lot of conversation that needs to happen and I'm hopeful it will happen around um, protecting public health, uh, enshrining minimum public health standards across the country. I think there is room for federal law reform to um, just as we have the Canada Health Act that protects a basic, you know, minimum set of uh, medically necessary services uh, for healthcare. We should have something similar for public health. And um, if we have that, we'll be so much better equipped to deal with acute crises issues and these long-term systemic and systematic issues that you raise, Ryan. And so I'm the forever optimist. I wouldn't be in this field if I wasn't an optimist. And I do hope really strongly that um, that Canada will reflect and will move forward on some systematic changes in this area and, and really shore up our public health resources because there's so much potential to prevent illness and death and to promote everyone, you know, to have as good a, a life and well-being as possible. We're, we're lucky that you are a perpetual optimist, Doctor. You, you, you uh, restore our faith in humanity and give us reason to believe that we can do better. I want to ask both of you about health reform uh, on the other side of this quick break we're going to take, because, because obviously in Canada, when you, when you talk about health care delivery, you're talking about the feds and the provinces, which is a huge deal. Uh, right? Uh, provinces with their autonomy, etc. And we'll get back to that in just a second. I want to say thank you to our sponsors this morning at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Uh, this team, Scott and his teams in St. Albert, that brand new Dodge dealership and Sherwood Park as well, have, have prided themselves in the relationship that they have with their loyal customers from the point of sale all the way through to the long-term service relationship. Uh, they are Alberta's biggest jeep dealers and if you're looking to upgrade your ride to make sure that you're well equipped to get around in this western canadian winter check out the 2020 grand cherokee i'm loving driving one of those right now from st albert dodge they've got a ton of them at sherwood dodge as well make sure you see them and you can link to their website under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com we'll get back to doctors varani and heishkin just a moment uh, sam let's take a look at the headlines here Well, you heard it at 9 o'clock here on the show, Alberta, again yesterday, breaking a single-day record for COVID infections, 1,733 active cases reporting on Monday as Alberta's ICU numbers continue to rise as well. Yesterday, we heard from Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Chrystia Freeland, her first detailed fiscal update, the government's first since the start of the pandemic, hers the first as... Finman, as they call it, as finance minister, the government forecasting a $381 billion deficit, this update ahead of a budget, which will give Canadians more of an idea of what the federal government's plan is. They talked about supporting frontline workers, low-income earners, students, women. A lot of priorities outlined, of course, as part of this big $100 billion fiscal stimulus package. Rent relief for airports, for those interested. I know a lot of people are keeping an eye on the aviation industry, wondering What's that going to look like in a year from now? Nothing yet for the big airlines, though the federal government continues to negotiate with them. And 
Today, December 1st, Alberta rolling out new impaired driving laws. Police will be able to hand out stricter impaired driving penalties roadside to get impaired drivers off the street immediately. The move expected to clear up the courts. The stronger impaired driver penalties include fines up to $2,000, immediate vehicle seizures up to 30 days, and mandatory ignition interlock for repeat offenders. That announced by the provincial government today. Uh, we're talking to uh, public health uh, professor, Dr. Elaine Heishkin. We're talking to uh, a, a man who, who certainly has seen it all. Uh, I, I keep saying seen it all, Hakeek, uh, Dr. Verani, as, as, as medical officer of health, but at least you saw a whole bunch, including H1N1, serving that role for 10 years and now in your role with addictions medicine and, and, and certainly on the front lines of this as well. Um, why don't we start with you? Dr. Verani, we talked about reforming the healthcare system, and I want to ask the two of you uh, about Vancouver Council's move in just a moment. That's an interesting one, I think, in a case study that Canadians will be watching. But with so much talk about healthcare, we really get into the weeds on it, right? I, I've, I found it difficult uh, to even have meaningful public conversations uh, about healthcare because so many you, you, people start talking about bloated middle management and waste and structure of healthcare delivery between the feds and the provinces, and it's it's such a massive machine. You know, it's like trying to turn around the Titanic. Bad example, maybe, or maybe it fits. Uh, but but how do you actually start to, I mean, is this something that the public has to make an election issue, as an example? How do you actually, people watching or listening right now or later on the podcast, how do you impact meaningful change? What can people do? Oh, wow. I, I don't know the answer to that, uh, Ryan. I would have thought that, um, you know, the expert commissions that we've had in the times that, pub that public health and healthcare have made major mistakes um, would have had an impact in the way that we move forward, and they've not. I guess, you know, like the answer to so many questions of public endeavor, the more that people know, the better that they're informed, um, the uh, more sophisticated our asks can be. Um, and the harder we can hold um, our elected officials' feet to the fire. But, um, you know, I, I think one of the challenges that we have, and one of the reasons why I, probably Elaine and I are both um, happy to be on your show, is that, um, you know, we need to be able to tease out real information from not, uh, from, from not real information. Democratization of knowledge is a really important thing. I, I believe that. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of folks um, get their information from places where uh, it's not reputable. Um, you've always made a point of asking that experts speak to issues that experts ought to speak to. Um, but, you know, a, a, how you decide whether or not a, a suggested healthcare reform or a suggested healthcare problem is real shouldn't depend on how many Twitter followers somebody has. Um, and so we, we really do, you know, it's a false argument that all big decisions have to be made by elected officials and they must be popular with the majority. Um, in our civil society, we do depend on unelected um, institutions of civil society that make independent decisions in the interest of the collective good while considering the needs of minority groups amongst us. Um, and I think that it being a more engaged civil society would probably go a long way to solving some of these issues. Yeah. And you know what I've, I've, uh, I, I've sort of thought, and by the way, isn't it, isn't it interesting? Isn't it kind of sad? Isn't it kind of an indictment on our entire communication or media landscape uh, when a show like this uh, is getting credit 
from people on Twitter is, is being celebrated by people on Twitter because we talk to experts about subjects that matter. People, people, are, people are acting like we're breaking the mold here because we're getting expert opinions on matters of public health. I mean, that to me is, uh, I guess we're happy to take the recognition, but it's kind of discouraging, yeah. quite frankly. Well, I, I, to be fair to your your um, your colleagues, Ryan, like I think one of the great things about your new show is that you can dive deeply into these issues, and you did that before as well. But um, you know, to hear at the, for example, at the COVID pressers, the updates and briefings, it's the same few reporters who have to deal with those issues. You spoke to Andrea Wu; she's covering COVID and the overdose epidemic. Yeah, um, it's a tough job. To go deep on these issues for um, for journalists nowadays, and so I think it, it behooves the public to try and uh, you know look for um, good information themselves. Um, I just want to jump in there too, though, because I I want to just make it clear that I don't think Hakik or I would would say that you know the only experts are people with medical degrees or with PhDs no. or oh, with sure. um, you know credentials. And I think Ryan, you know, I've listened to you for a long time uh, when you, you know in your previous uh, life and now your new endeavor. And you've always been really good about um, having people whose lives are directly impacted by the issues on air. And I know you've had in the past people who use drugs um, or someone who uses supervised consumption service. And it is so critical to hear those voices um, to have meaningful engagement with people with lived experience of, of the issue at hand. And I just think that that goes a real long way in understanding the potentially unintended consequences of some policies or different government actions, and also in identifying what are the most effective solutions. And, you know, in public health um, and in health promotion, that is a central tenet of how we operate is that we engage the population that's impacted to understand the issue and to devise solutions together. And I think um, that will strengthen public health responses, whether it be for a pandemic or the overdose epidemic. And so, you know, in our work, um, we're trying to reform the healthcare system to be better for people who are struggling with substance use issues. And we don't do anything without consulting with people who use drugs first and getting their insights. And I think um, it's not just about consulting them and hearing their expertise. It's also about empowering them to make the changes themselves. Like there's nothing more powerful than having a patient with a negative experience, talk to a set of healthcare providers and explain what happened and why it impacted them. That is how we make change. And, um, decision makers at all levels need to be in touch with people with lived experience and to hear their stories. And it's just, you can't underestimate how powerful that is. And so I think that is a key to achieving broader health reform is to, um, give, a platform for those voices. Yeah, I remember Vancouver decriminalization um, motion from from City Council is a great example of what Elaine just described. Um, you know, the the uh, voices of um, people who use drugs was instrumental in um, in pushing City Council to that decision. Um, and one of their champion um, legal societies was also uh, critical to coming up with a, a decent motion. Um, and there were some whereases in that motion that were just spectacular um, in the way that they reflected the real experience of people who who um, lived the the downside of poor drug policy. Let's get into that story. I mean, that quite frankly, 
here's what we're, we're just figuring out what this show can be and these conversations and people are telling us our audience is telling us they're loving these long form conversations and i'm chuckling because it's now 9 40 which means it's been about 30 37 minutes since we started talking and now we're going to get to the subject that i asked you to come talk about here on the show 37 minutes into the interview but uh but as mentioned we talked to andrea Wu, who, who really does an incredible job and she's achieved national renown well deserved as a health journalist with the globe and mail uh she lives and works in vancouver and she She's been following the story of, of Vancouver City Council. Uh, tomorrow, it'll be a week uh, since they voted unanimously to decriminalize the possession of small amounts of drugs within city limits. Um, this is this is uh, following years of, of public debate about this. Uh, we're going to be talking to Liberal MP Nathaniel Erskine Smith on Thursday about this. He's been talking about this for years. Uh, Vancouver's Mayor Kennedy Stewart says it's time to develop uh, what he calls a health-focused solution and end the stigma around drug use. Of course, the city of Vancouver will still uh, need this to be approved by Ottawa. They're seeking an exemption and then they'll process how the decriminalization will be implemented. Uh, Dr. Heishka, why don't we come to you first on this? What, what is this? I mean, I mean, I suspect that y- you've got a, probably a pretty strong opinion on whether or not this is a good move or not. Uh, take us into what you're making of this and whether or not you think that this could be a case study that could maybe apply to some sort of a national policy or national federal legislation. Yeah, and I apologize because I didn't hear Andrea, so I don't want to, um, you know, accidentally repeat what's already been said. But I think, really critically, public health is in agreement that this is the way to go. Like we know that the evidence shows, uh, criminalizing individual possession is not effective for deterring substance use if that's the aim, um, but it is really effective for increasing the harms of that substance use. And so whether that be in terms of increasing overdose risk, increasing risk of HIV or hepatitis C, there's a whole host of negative outcomes related to substance use that are exacerbated when people are at risk of criminal sanction. And so it's not controversial in our field. I I think the people that study substance use drug policy, especially in Canada, are in alignment on this. Um, We've seen, you know, the uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health for Toronto or the um, lead public health officer there endorse it as well. Um, uh, The Board of Health, I think, endorsed decriminalization there. It's frankly long overdue. Um, Even the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police are supporting it. So my question is why haven't we seen it yet? You know, um, I can appreciate, again, this is where the politics and public health intersect. Uh, we have a minority parliament. Um, this is a, a still a controversial issue amongst the general public. Um, and so we haven't seen the federal government move forward with broad reform here. I think what Vancouver is doing though is providing them uh, a middle option. Instead of just not acting or acting and reforming the law across the country, it's saying try decriminalization here in our city see how it goes, monitor the impacts. And I think that that could provide a really important case study for moving forward with broader policy reform here. And I think that would just, you know, if we look at where we invest our money when we address substance use, we invest invested in policing and jails. That is where the vast majority of resources go. Um, even when we say that we, we support a health approach, you know, this is not a criminal issue, it's a health issue. We, like we have politicians, everyone likes to say that, um, chiefs of police like to say that, but at the end of the day, the money is still going to criminal justice. And I think a, a real um, move in the right direction is to stop enforcing hundreds and thousands of you know charges against people um, for criminal possession in the country and to put the resources that we would spend doing that into the healthcare sector to properly address substance use issues when they arise. Uh, Dr. Vrani, just in, in, in plain language, why do you think uh, the concept of what Vancouver's council is pursuing here is is so unpalatable to some to some people? Is, is it the idea that 
that if you decriminalize narcotics possession, that you're that it's going to be a free for all that that 11 year olds are going to be shooting up on the schoolyards that everyone that has never been inclined to try methamphetamines before is all of a sudden going to be burying their face in them. I mean, what, what, what in, in plain language, what's what's behind the public hesitation? I think that's probably some of it. And what you're speaking to is the unfamiliarity that people have with people who use drugs. My suggestion would be meet somebody. Um, because most Canadians use some psychoactive substance, whether it's alcohol or cannabis or whether it's a drug that's currently illegal, most Canadians do. And I think that when people um, envision a person who uses drugs, they think of um, you know, somebody who really the, the characteristics uh, that they're uncomfortable with is more along the lines of uh, they're poor or they come from a racial group that you've not been familiar with. Um, that there's differences there that you are uncomfortable with. And I think that underlies a lot of our apprehensions about so many policy issues is not so much whether they, uh, the, the policy suggested works or not, but how comfortable you are with the people that it applies to. Um, and that I think is a, a, a bigger problem that we ought to deal with is, uh, you know, we're at a time where everybody's life literally depends on each other. Um, and uh, so, you know, we should take that to heart and recognize that um, we're, you know, we're connected. <laughs> and when somebody's um, harmed by a policy that is fundamentally unjust, um, we all ought to stand up um, and, and demand change. You know, to me, it's interesting that the places where um, harm reduction measures are most accepted or where drug policy change is most popular are those places that are familiar or have become more familiar with those ways of thinking, right? In, um, in Vancouver, the, since Insight opened, the um, apprehensions about supervised consumption have gone down, not up. And I would hope that the same will happen in, in Edmonton, that the more familiar people are with the benefits of these interventions or the benefits of these public health approaches, the less apprehension there is about them. Um, and similarly, it, it should be for decriminalization. You know, uh, there's a, a narrative that's extremely powerful about how traumatic police uh, encounters can be for especially some racial groups. And to recognize how many of those encounters have something to do with the possession of drugs for personal use, um, we have to come to the conclusion that the removal of that interaction is really, really important. Um, you know, Elaine talked about how um, it, how criminal drug laws are not a deterrent to um, people taking up drug use. And she said correctly that they are uh, a way to, um, to enhance the harms that, that occur um, that are related to drug use. And one of those harms is encounters with, uh, with police. You know, and, and it's, uh, you know, you, you take a look at, and even to broaden our conversation, um, and I don't know if either of you have an opinion on this or not, but, but I've had really interesting uh, conversations with, with sex trade workers that have gone so far as traveling to Ottawa to lobby the House of Commons to consider uh, completely and dramatically transforming Canada's laws with regards to, 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 uh, to sex, the sex trade. And, and I mean, that's another conversation where I think if you, if you put it in, in front of the, the general population, or I mean, even if people are having this conversation with their friends and you talk about things like decriminalizing possession of all drugs or legalizing the sex trade, decriminalizing the sex trade, et cetera, uh, for a lot of people, it's, it's, it's almost a non-starter or there's inherent pushback 
just because it it's it's it, it goes against the way that it's always been and there's kind of a fear of the unknown of what it might look like i mean i mean to even look back a couple of years ago to october 17th what was it 2018 i think when 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 canada essentially legalized cannabis and and you look i mean it was like y2k style panic uh, from a lot of people that thought these kind of stoned zombies were going to be wandering around the streets and there's going to be secondhand smoke polluting all the open spaces. And really, I would humbly suggest that aside from from the prominence of uh, cannabis retail shops, absolutely nothing has changed. Yeah, um, I think that's a fair characterization. The sky didn't fall. You're right. Um what did happen, though, is interestingly, um, a large proportion of the people and, and organizations capitalizing on cannabis legalization um, were supporters of those who believed in criminalizing um, cannabis. And so it's, it, that's to me, is very peculiar. Uh, it's similar to you know, people using civil liberties arguments to um, justify not following public health restrictions are often the same people who say that people shouldn't be allowed to use illegal drugs. Um, want, taking one civil liberty actually affects other people, not wearing a mask, um, gathering in, in um, mass settings. Uh, whereas you know, somebody um, using cannabis on their own in a way that doesn't hurt them um, is not imposing on somebody else's um, right to security of person. So I, like, I think we have to be reflective about our positions on these things and you know, supporting Drug decriminalization does not mean endorsing drug use. I don't use drugs at all. I don't even drink alcohol. But this is a really important, I think, social justice and um, uh, and human rights issue that that um, and, and those are things that we say we believe in in this country. So we, we ought to show it. Yeah, Hakik, as a as a personal friend of yours, uh, I've known you now for several years. That was that was the dumbest I've ever felt uh, in your presence when uh, after both of us participated in a lively forum. Uh, about uh, addiction treatment in public health, I invited you to go out for beers with me. At, at which point, you, you you pointed out that you don't consume alcohol. I thought, oh boy, that well, was a little that was a little I, bit awkward. I, I feel bad. I thought I might have made you feel dumber some other time. <laughs> well, no, no. I mean, I feel dumb every time I talk to the two of you, only because it reiterates how no, smart no, no. you are. It reiterates how smart you are, and I learn something every single time. I can tell by his body language um, that the producer of this show, Sam Brooks, am I picking? Do you, you have a uh, a question for? Uh, why don't we go to Dr. Heishka first? I don't even know what you want to ask, but Sam, uh, patch yourself in. Yeah, sure. I've been I've been intently listening, and and also just um, you know decriminalization and sort of the harm reduction approach is something that I've I've personally really believed in for years, and I find this you know this just is a fascinating story and good on you, Vancouver. Um, my question is like, what do we do next? And and I say this because. You know, we talk about decriminalization um, gets drugs out of the criminal justice system and into the healthcare system where we can help addicts recover and we can help people, you know, move on with their addictions and seek treatment. But that also needs to be paired with a safe supply. Um, we still have so much fentanyl on the streets. And I'm wondering now that we have the legal framework in place, how do we fix the supply problem? That's a great question. So I would say we actually, even with decriminalization, wouldn't have the legal framework in place to um, fully support the concept of safe supply. Right now, what we're seeing is across the country, 
the federal government has um, invested in a number of different pilots where they have small programs that are connecting people who use drugs and are dependent on the illegal market to access those drugs um, to pharmaceutical grade alternatives. And so basically the principle there is simple. Um, when you use illegal drugs, and you don't know what you're getting. Um, they're very high, you know, we know that drugs in Canada right now are very toxic. Uh, if you choose to use drugs and you're using a pharmaceutical grade alternative, you do know what you get, you're getting, you do know the dose and you're able to manage your risk a lot better. So those programs are rolling out across the country. They're not rolling out in Alberta. The provincial government has been very clear here that that's not something they wanna do. Um, and I find that unfortunately regrettable because I think it can't be overstated how severe the overdose epidemic is. And, you know, just when we thought it couldn't get worse, COVID happened and now it is so much worse. And so if we want to get out of this situation, we need to be willing to try new approaches to evaluate those approaches and to innovate. And, you know, no matter how much money we throw at the traditional treatment system, like residential treatment or, um, you know, medications, those will only ever appeal to a subset of the population of people that are using drugs right now. And so if we wanna cut down on deaths and we wanna prevent family and friends from grieving those losses, we really need to be willing to innovate and try new things. And so I'm hopeful that um, as more experience uh, becomes known, you know, and as there's more experience with safer supply programs in other parts of the country, that the provincial government will reconsider that position because I think it is something that's very promising. Decrim alone will definitely not reduce overdose deaths. Like it will encourage people to be more open talking about their substance use. It may encourage more people to seek help um, and to seek out health care uh, for their substance use. But at the end of the day, unless we can um, get people out of the illegal market, and connect them to safer pharmaceutical alternatives, I think we'll continue to see overdoses. And I just add to, for people that are, uh, you know, cringing at the idea of providing pharmaceutical grade drugs to people who are using drugs, um, we have to remember too that that not only promotes the health and well-being of people, but it also, um, you know, and prevents their risk of overdose death, but it also reduces their need to rely on illegal activities to generate the vast amount of revenue required to purchase drugs on the illegal market. And it certainly will cut down on profits going to, um, you know, organizations like transnational organizations that are benefiting from the multi-billion dollar international drug trade. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's worth noting, I mean, uh, you know, you when it comes to government ideology and every government and every political leader and every party has its own ideology, ideology itself is not an inherently devastating word. Sometimes the ideology can be devastating to some people, but I, I think it's safe to suggest, uh, Elaine, like you just pointed out, um, that, that this is not a provincial government, I think, that would ever consider something like providing a safe supply. As a matter of fact, I can't think of anything that would be further uh, from this government priorities. Back in March of 2018, uh, Premier Jason Kenney, by way of a Facebook post, uh, quote, we absolutely need to show compassion for those suffering with addiction, and we need to help them get off drugs, but helping addicts inject poison into their bodies is not a long-term solution to the problem. Uh, Hakik, I can see you tense up as, as you hear me read that. Um, this government has pulled funding uh, from uh, supervised consumption services, uh, either ones that were inching toward opening or ones that were opening and operational, uh, albeit some of them, uh, you know, dealing with some administrative problems. Certainly Leth Lethbridge's Arches facility is one example. Uh, but I know that that was a devastating uh, funding withdrawal for many, many people. Um, Hakeek, Dr. Varani, where, where do you stand on that? I mean, I, I could tell you had a visceral reaction when I read that quote. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Um, to characterize 
uh, a, an intervention, a public health intervention that has such great evidence um, to characterize it as such. Um, and to be so graphic about, uh, to try and marginalize people who already are, are excluded and subjugated, um, it, to, to characterize them that way, it, it, it really hurts. Um, because we've, you know, we've seen how much of a benefit it is to have a non-judgmental group of people who can help uh, somebody who uses drugs and has run into troubles with them. It kind of, it, you know, I, you watch the, the Queen's Gambit, um, if you've seen this show on Netflix, um, it's really interesting because so that the main character, Beth, she's nine years old. She goes to, she lives in an orphanage. And at this orphanage, um, they stand, the girls stand in a line every morning and they're given a multivitamin and a tranquilizer in the morning. And one of the older girls tells her, you, you should try and save that for nighttime, which she did. And she preferred taking it at nighttime. So you'd get in trouble if you didn't take the tranquilizer in the morning as prescribed. Um, and, uh, and then what happened was that the state stopped that practice. They said, you can't give these to, to the little girls anymore. So Beth broke into the little dispensary to try and get this, this drug. All that changed was the arbitrary rule changed, right? You, you can take this in the morning, you can't take this at night. Um, you can take this when we give it to you, you can't take it when we don't give it to you. Well, the reason why it was wrong for, for for Beth to use these drugs in the way that she was, was because she liked it, not because it was a different drug. Um, and so I think it's, it's pretty puritanical the way that we approach this is that, okay, we'll prescribe you all sorts of drugs, but the moment you start to like what they do to you, we have to stop because um, that's hedonic, right? And we, we can't allow that. If you like it, it's no good. Like heroin, for example, as far as pharmacology goes, fantastic drug. The amount that you need to take to get the intended effect is so much lower than the amount that you need to take to die. But because the intended effect was euphoria, we stopped using it. Bayer used to market this, this drug all over the place, but as the moment that people started to enjoy it, and especially the moment that poor people or racialized groups started to enjoy it, it became wrong. Hmm. Um, and I, we have to confront the, the framework with which we think of these things um, to be able to understand what the position is of people who are just trying to access a different quality of life than we've given to them. Yeah, and I think that that's really the role of public health here. Like we've seen really significant harms when drugs are solely in the illegal market and there's no control on um, who they're marketed to, what's in them, um, you know, how aggressively they're um, promoted. Likewise, we've seen significant harm on the other end of the spectrum when um, they're commercially you know, promoted and we've heard all heard about Purdue and um, now McKinsey uh, and all these different uh, corporations that profited significantly off um, connecting as many people as they could to opioids and then hopefully keeping them prescribed for as long as possible. Neither is an ideal model and in public health, we would never support either. The point of public health is to recognize that it is likely extremely unrealistic and probably um, not even a good goal to try and prevent all substance use. You know, we know that some people do derive benefits from whatever drug they're using, and we should be realistic and recognize that. And it's about understanding how can we regulate this activity, which has inherent risk in a way that um, prevents as much harm as possible in the population and doesn't infringe um, unnecessarily on people's personal liberties and rights. And so I think um, when we talk about a public health approach to substance use, decriminalization fits in that perspective, uh, harm reduction, treatment, primary prevention 
helping people to not develop, you know, significant problems with drugs. Um, and to do that effectively, it usually takes a fairly concerted investment at an early age. Um, but we have the evidence to support those kinds of tools and interventions. And if governments were willing to allow a public health approach, you know, to be adopted in this space, I think we would significantly cut down on the number of people dying and we'd promote um, people's well-being, and we would reduce all of the host of negative health outcomes that come from, you know, uncontrolled drugs on either end of the, the spectrum, whether it be legal or commercial. I, it's so uh, important. I the other important point to make is, and those are, I mean, Elaine basically said in a smart way what I was trying to say, fumbling <laughs> through. But I think that underlying all of this is that, um, you know, drug use often reflects, and the groups that um, that run into troubles um, with drug use, it, it reflects how um, opportunity and quality of life is distributed through our population. And you know, uh, we can we can try and trim around the edges of um, a, an overdose epidemic as as much as we want, and there are some interventions that we know will make a difference, decrim um, harm reduction approaches and um, for many people, um, better access to addiction treatment when they've run into troubles, addiction troubles with their drugs. But ultimately it's gonna come down to what opportunities and quality of life can we afford as a society to people who um, we've pushed to the edges. And you know, I think that's a, a question for how we respond to COVID. That's a question for how we respond to um, uh, movements like Black Lives Matter. It's a importance for um, addressing truth and reconciliation and finally giving Indigenous people um, uh, the rights they deserve. Um, and it, it, it's the same with, um, with the overdose epidemic. Dr. Hakeek Varani is a clinical associate professor in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Alberta, a specialist physician in public health, uh, preventative medicine and addiction medicine, a former medical officer of health uh, for Health Canada for 10 years, including through the H1N1 influenza uh, virus. And uh, Dr. Elaine Heishka, an amazing and remarkable assistant professor at the School of Public Health, University of Alberta. You can tell, can't you, uh, friends tuned in watching or listening to this right now, how much they give a damn about what we're talking about, how much they care about people that the human side of this conversation i'm so grateful that the both of you gave us an hour of your time to have a, an exploratory and free-flowing and meaningful and focused conversation on public health policy uh in a number of different contexts and i'm grateful for, i know that every single one of us uh that was privileged enough to hear from you today learned something and thank you so much for joining us and i'll look forward to future and further conversation on this Thanks, Ryan. I'm a huge fan of both of those two, and, and you can probably tell why. Give them a follow on Twitter at Hakik and at Heishka, and we, we link to those uh, every morning. I tweet out the guests that are going to be on the show, including my brother Kyle, in just a second. I'm essentially just going to roll over into that interview and have Kyle pick up where those two left off because he works on the front line of, of this. When we talk about the opioid crisis, when we talk about people who use drugs, when we talk about the city of Vancouver, that's our focal point today. Uh, Vancouver Council's uh, unanimous vote to decriminalize possession of drugs. It'll require cooperation from the feds on that and we'll get Kyle's take on that Kyle Jesperson in just a moment uh, want to thank the team at local waste for ensuring that each and every day we are bringing you real talk on this platform weekdays from 8 30 all the way through this is a team that understands the beauty and importance of local service delivery for 25 years local waste has been providing services right here in the metro edmonton region going head to head against those big faceless multinational garbage corporations uh, whether you're a little operation or 
weigh up one of those big ones and waste removal is something you need to deal with, why not deal with somebody that gives you their first name and their phone number? Like Chris and Lauren Labossier have done at 780-242-9746. They want your business at local waste. You know, we're also now, of course, 24 days away from a pretty big day for those that will be observing Christmas. Whatever your family's holiday season looks like, if it includes a feast, I want to direct you toward the team, my friends at Friesen Brothers. They've got 15 locations almost open in Alberta. Beautiful South Edmonton store set to open in the spring. We love the locations and drive out to get our groceries in Fort Saskatchewan, Stony Plain. And I know that many of you that are listening in across the province of Alberta feel very strongly about your Friesen Brothers store. Because every time I talk about them, you chime in and let me know what you love best from their Red Seal chefs. Well, that team of Red Seal chefs is set to go with turkeys, with all the fixins, including Alberta-grown produce. Why not leave your holiday meal planning and delivery to the Friesen Brothers. They'll make it all happen. You show up, you pick it up, and there you go. You're not sweating in the kitchen while everybody else in your immediate family unit is socializing. Friesen Brothers is Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned. Well, as mentioned, and I don't know if uh, any of you wagered, put money down on which one of my family members was going to be first to appear here on Real Talk, but if you guessed my brother Kyle... I guess you're the big winner today. You're you're ultimately going to meet my dad, Bruce, who's a, a retired family physician. Uh, he's living with Parkinson's, which adds some interesting complexity to his perspective. My mom, a retired teacher and homemaker. My sister, Megan, a counseling psychologist. My youngest brother, Jonas, grows cannabis for Joy Botanicals. Uh, but it's Kyle, uh, my brother, that will be making his debut first on Real Talk today. Seven years, Kyle's been working uh, ongoing in Vancouver's downtown east side in clinical, residential, and community settings with a focus on detox and harm reduction services. He's currently co-managing Insight Supervised Injection Site, where he also served as a night coordinator for about four years through our ongoing tainted drug crisis. Insight, you may know, if you've been paying attention to this conversation, the model in Canada. It's been operating under federal exemption for 17 years. It's recorded literally millions of visits, thousands of referrals, and zero deaths. Kyle, welcome to Real Talk. It's a real pleasure to have you here, brother. It's a real pleasure for me, too. Yeah, it's a real honor to uh, close this year out. It's a new month, and um, wow, what a lot of reflection we have to do. Yeah, so I know that you were you were paying attention to what uh, the good doctors had to say right before you were here, and we're obviously talking about a, a city council vote, a unanimous vote that occurred last Wednesday in your home city, uh, Vancouver, uh, a motion uh, from Vancouver's Mayor Kennedy Stewart to decriminalize uh, small possession, possession of small amounts of narcotics within Vancouver's uh, city limits. Why is this significant through your eyes, through your perspective? Well, uh, every day I go to work and um, I come across the drug users in our city, the people who use drugs. And um, one of the great difficulties of coming into contact with them every day is knowing that when they step outside of the safety and protection of our clinic, that they are criminalized and that at any moment uh, they could get shook down, stopped, searched, arrested, abused, um, and this has been happening for many years to the point that there's so much uh, depression and demoralization amongst the uh, community of people who use drugs that um, something needs to change, and this is that first sign that, that this is happening. 
We talked, uh, uh, Dr. Heishka, Dr. Varani talked about the hesitance uh, and, and some of the perceived or real barriers, uh, people who use drugs, of, of, of interacting with healthcare delivery, with the healthcare system, whether that's reporting to ER, uh, you know, post overdose, or, or whether that's talking to a, a health counselor, whether that's a regular consultation, let alone an annual physical, whatever the case may be. Insight has obviously, uh, like, like, like we said in your introduction, for, for coming up on 20 years, provided a window of sorts, provided an entry point, provided a contact point uh, for people who use drugs, human beings, uh, to make connections within the healthcare system. How does that work? I mean, you see it each and every day. How does it actually play out? Yeah, this is a great question. It's, it's important to understand that insight is about so much more than just injection. Uh, it's about connection, really. It's about um, educating people. It's about education around uh, injection techniques. Um, and when you start to make that uh, connection with people uh, and meet them where they're at and reduce their harm and show them that, that you have no judgment around their current practices and their current self-soothing techniques, then they're going to be more open to hearing what you might have to say about accessing detox services or another type of treatment or recovery center, or putting in a housing application that could stabilize their life, or noticing that um, if we notice that they have abscesses or wounds that need some proper care because they're uh, getting worse due to uh, street entrenchment, that whole lifestyle. There's so many things that we can identify when we engage people where they're at that can lead to better health outcomes in so many ways. So for people that are that are listening to this podcast later in the day or people that are streaming us live, uh, audio, watching on video, I mean, you, you have an audience, obviously, that's going to grow through the day here as people you know hear this message. And I guarantee, Kyle, that a, a portion of the audience, an element of the audience is, is, is going to see eye to eye with politicians that would push back on the idea uh, or, or the model of supervised consumption services, the, the idea that, that, that we're, what we're doing is normalizing uh, drug use or, or, or we're endorsing drug use or we're paving the way for people that don't use drugs to start experimenting with drugs because the barriers, legal or otherwise, have been removed. We're, gonna, we're, we're not going to solve the problem. We're going to perpetuate the drug use. And ultimately, I mean, you've heard this a million times. Speak directly to the people whose perspective might be be that why is it important to reconsider well if we're not advocating for new systems we're saying that we're fine with the old systems um and with the current old uh, outmoded misguided and frankly bad policy that we have right now uh we're seeing uh continuing overdose deaths we're seeing continuing sickness we're seeing continuing poverty we have to be fearless um and be willing to change our minds. Um, I, that's why I commend our city council. You know, so there's so much hesitation around re-examining our beliefs on drug use and changing our drug policy. But we need to just give our heads a shake and realize that what we're doing is not working. And I can tell you that firsthand, I see that every single day. So it's very much about laying down our pride uh, it's about laying down our judgment and realizing that this is not a moral issue. It's a health issue. We can't attach morality to chemical compounds. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. It's just about having the humility to understand that we can change things. And really this drug policy that we're operating under now has only been in place for less than a century. It's not the way things need to be or should be. Well, and it's totally arbitrary. 
Right. I mean, it just it, yeah. it, it's completely arbitrary. If, if you can if you can allow yourself, uh, I'm not talking you, Kyle, I'm talking as, as society, if we can allow ourselves to 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 assume that there are no parameters in a conversation. Right. And to and to, to start wondering why things like, you know, tobacco are, are is legal and alcohol is legal, but certain narcotics are illegal. If we actually do a deep dive into what has driven drug policy in the in the United States and in Canada and other countries, if we if we start to really look at this and quite frankly, if we start to follow the money as well, when it comes to where governments are investing and how governments are approaching, for example, the opioid crisis, I think that a lot of people might have these moments, the, these epiphanies, uh, where we realize that that just because something has been the way it is, I mean, I love the way that you put it. If we're not willing to change what we're alluding to or what we're accepting is that things are going well the way they are. And, and quite frankly, right now in Canada, you cannot make that assertion when you take a look. I mean, Andrea Wu, we talked to her from the Globe and Mail, uh, Elaine Heishka reiterating this. You have five people dying a day in British Columbia uh, due to this. And we're not even... I hate to say it. I hate to put it this way, Kyle. I know you are in your line of work talking about it, and healthcare professionals are certainly talking about it. But the, this is off the general public's radar. I mean, like literally, people will sit here and say, "Oh yeah, we do have the opioid crisis," but the word "crisis" should mean something. The word "crisis" should demand some sort of response, meaningful response. Yeah, and I think that sometimes it does us a disservice to call this a crisis because that seems to insinuate there's a start date and there's an end date and it's something that, wow, we all managed to get through and wow, remember that crisis. This is not so much a crisis as it is just an ongoing extended spiral due to bad drug policy. Um, you're right when you really get down to the brass tacks of it, to the science of it, substances mean different things for everybody's different neural pathways. Um, and nowadays, drugs are becoming more and more chemical. So the way we've been trying to do things is, is stop it at the source. You know, you can put, you can um, investigate and put sanctions on Afghanistan for opium or um, Colombia for cocaine. But now people are starting to manufacture fentanyl and other opioid analogs um, anywhere they can. It's getting harder and harder to enforce and becoming, it's, it's becoming less plant-based and more uh, lab-based. Um, it's just getting worse and worse. There's no way to stop it um, or mitigate it, really, under under our current system. So this is, uh, you know, you take a look at at what Insight has accomplished or what it's it's done over the 17 years that it's that, and like you said, millions of visits, literally millions of visits from people, and zero deaths. Um, the the observation that you'll see from some politicians, including here in Alberta, Kyle is that, you know, quote, you know, or let me say paraphrased, all you need to do is take a look at Vancouver's East Hastings area to get a sense of what this looks like. In other words, taking insight, right? And this is oftentimes used by the NIMBY crowd, where you open a supervised consumption site uh, or, 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 you know, policies in place by way of a development permit or public town hall forums, and, and people will say, well, I don't want that. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want people, sh you know, showing up to use drugs in my neighborhood. The crime's going to go up. There, there's going to be needles everywhere in our backyards. They're going to be breaking into vehicles. You only need to look at East Hastings to get a sense of what happens when you have supervised consumption sites. You've heard this thousands of times. I know from detractors. What would it look like if Insight was not there? Oh my God! What would what would Vancouver like if Insight 
you know, sometimes I, I imagine back to the early 90s when my organization, PHS Community Services Society, started. There was virtually nothing for our people in the neighborhood at that time. And people were so sick, they were using puddle water in the alleys to inject. They had no options uh, if they had horrible wounds or abscesses or internal conditions or blood diseases or any, any of that stuff. I, I can't even imagine. It is bad right now. I mean, we're not trying to, to cover that up. Here's the situation in Vancouver. We take care of citizens from across the country. So when I hear other health ministers, other leaders from other provinces and citizens to deride Vancouver and say, we don't want what they're doing here. Well, guess what? We're taking care of your friends. We're taking care of your sisters, your brothers, your aunts, your uncles, your nieces, your nephews, etc. So I get really sick of this anti-Vancouver, anti-downtown east side. No, we're, sent, we're setting an example and we're taking care. There's harm being done. Yes, we're reducing it. If you're only going to give us that, that's all we're ever going to do. The harm's going to keep on happening. And we're going to keep on trying to reduce it. And it's pretty absurd and ridiculous. So let's kick in the other measures. And we can start sending some of these people back to their families and reconnecting them with work and life fulfillment. And then we can stop pointing a finger at this problem that really we've all created and has just ended up here because this is one of the few corners of our country that's temperate enough to, for people to survive when they're sick and they don't have homes and they don't have any support systems. You can tell... If you're watching right now, you can tell if you're listening uh, to this right now how much my brother Kyle uh, cares passionately about what he does. And your professional journey, Kyle, is, is interwoven with a personal journey. And it's been amazing to watch. And I'm so very proud of you. Um, we're getting set to sign off here for the morning. But, but I want to ask you to leave us with something uh, to walk with today, something to think about, something that may challenge our, our preconceived notions or our strong opinions on this matter. Give us something to put in front of our family and friends when conversation around this, around supervised consumption or decriminalization policy or public health policy surfaces. And we want to have an informed and gutsy and sometimes uncomfortable conversation. Give us something to walk with and think about today. That's a big question. Um, like I said earlier, it's about laying down our humility and having these conversations in a new way. Uh, you know, I was at a playground recently and um, one of the parents there used the J word. It's a pejorative term in reference to a person who uses drugs. Right. And they used this word in front of all the kids that were running and playing around us. Kids heard it. Three-year-olds heard it. My son heard it. And it was accepted. No other parents questioned it. I was the only guy who bristled. And I think that's a sign that we're really stuck in these judgmental ways of thinking. So make little changes in yourself. Stop using words and terms that oppress people who have deteriorating health conditions. Don't be afraid to ask people, hey, has drug use or drug policy or the drug, the tainted drug problem that we're having has that affected your life ask these questions in a new way 
step outside your front door today and entertain the thought, hey, you know what? Drug use should not be illegal. And for people who use drugs, they should have access to medical support and pharmaceutical alternatives so they can stabilize their life and that we can all move forward and all progress and all contribute to society. Do the work internally. Start doing it in your social circles. Renew the, the phrasing you use and the conversations you'll have. It's a beautiful thing, and you will set yourself free, much like I have. Yeah, you sure have, and I'm so proud of you, and I couldn't be more proud of you this morning, and I love you dearly. That uh, Kyle Jesperson, uh, my friends tuning in, my brother, obviously, uh, who co-manages Insight Supervised Injection Site in Vancouver's uh, downtown east side. Thanks for making time for us this morning, brother. I know you'll be back on the show soon enough, and I look forward to it already. Well, it's a real honor to talk on this topic at this time in history, so thank you, my brother. I'm really proud of you and your new show. It's just wonderful. There you go. These are the types of conversations we want to have, the types of conversations we are having and will continue to have on this program. And I really appreciate Kyle's availability. I uh, want to take a moment to recognize uh, some of the partners that make conversations like these possible because they're keeping our studio lights on. They're making sure that the live streaming keeps working They're Well, they're keeping us rolling into every morning with real talk, including the team at Westworld Computers. 40 years as a family-owned business, uh, your go-to for the Apple lineup in Western Canada, including Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary. A personal relationship with customers is what they're most proud of. So whether it's an iPhone, the latest one you're looking for, or maybe you're looking for the sexiest desktop unit that you can find to power your new creative venture, make sure you talk to the team at Westworld Computers. And while you're out and about today and you're feeling that hunger, or maybe you just want to treat yourself, who does treats better than Dairy Queen? Nobody is the quick answer. And there's six locations in Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park that deserve your business, if for no other reason that they believe in and support what we're doing here. Uh, Michael and Mark co-own these locations independently and locally that employ local people. And as you... Of course, find ways to adjust to this pandemic by hitting drive throughs and using your favorite delivery apps. I ask you to consider the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Sam Brooks, the producer of this show, it, it, it's all of a sudden 1020. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we've sort of said that the show will go until it goes. We don't have to cap off or cut off or stop short meaningful conversations. But, but what a day this has been with regards to pushing us out of our comfort zones on, on, on maybe some ideas or opinions we may have on the issue of people who use drugs and drug policy in Canada. Yeah, but, I mean, pushing people out of their comfort zones is the whole point of your show, isn't it? Like, I mean, that that's what we're here to do, right? We're, we're here to have real talk and real conversations. No, I, I mean, I, it, it's funny. I keep a, a notebook here um, so I can note uh, quotes that would be good for using highlight clips later and that kind of stuff. And I have like two pages from today's discussion. Um, you know, where, where are you finding the time to write down quotes in a notebook where are you i barely have i barely have time to check my twitter mentions uh let alone top up a coffee and here you are keeping the entire technical production going and the, making the problem notes. with topping up coffees for me is the coffee makers on the other side of the room and we i have, have to, to crawl on the floor if i need to get another coffee while we're on the air i think we need to move the coffee <laughs> maker can, can we go to our gopro camera that i'm so excited about is that fired up right now see so people can see here's our studio setup here yeah. uh, i'm so excited to have jay bigham's art here every time we go to this camera 
camera it's shot. I get excited. So gorgeous. But but the the coffee you can't see the it's in it's in your bottom left hand corner if you're watching us right now. Literally right underneath the camera. Yeah, yeah. Li- literally right underneath the camera, right beside the Real Talk Studio beer fridge. And as you can see, th- there are obstacles in the way between Sam and the coffee maker. And, and the last thing I want to do is get you. <laughs> Uh, so annoyed because because the coffee you can see it you can it's it's twelve to fourteen feet away from you you can see it but you can't access it. <laughs> you know this it's kind of funny. Um, every show I anticipate to get myself a coffee right before we go on air, and and every show it's like I'm scrambling to get something ready or something like that. And this is the first show in seven shows I've started with a full coffee at the beginning of it. So that's that's really go. nice. All but right. you well, know, I mean, if you want uh, I me mean, to circle back to our discussion today, I, I just there's so much to take away from that. I mean, hearing from your brother Carl, Kyle was heartbreaking to think about the people that are using that. I mean, Insight is a facility that works. We know it works. It's a model that needs to be exported all over the country, frankly, yeah. all over the world. Uh, harm reduction is the way to go, and I'm so happy to see what Vancouver's doing. One of the things I think that's, that's, uh, that's uh, and, and Drs. Heishka and Varani also kind of alluded to this, though Kyle spelled it out, uh, was the idea of, 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 how, of how we apply ethics or morals uh, to, to matters or policy or public conversations around drugs. In other words, if we clutch our pearls over something, then we demand that there be legislation around it. If we believe that, that you know, to just to put it this way, if, if heroin's not for you, or if the idea of, of blowing rails at a party and using cocaine is appalling to you, then nobody should use it, right? If you, if you, if you know a story anecdotally of somebody that overdosed tragically and died, and I'm certainly not making light of that, then, then obviously you're, you're, you're potentially going to be in a position where you believe that you should impose or apply your perspective on an anecdotal scenario to national to federal drug policy and i think that it's 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 easier said than done to pull ourselves away from that we are inclined as people to believe that if if we feel strongly about something that that potentially it should be legislated but but quite frankly it's 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 the most anti-conservative thing you can do uh to 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 impose more legislation to, to meddle in other people's lives but also i think that government needs to do more based on public demand to provide supports for people who use drugs and i hope that our conversations today with andrea Wu and dr heishka dr vrani and my brother kyle have have provided some people with with food for thought so to speak on this yeah, I, I mean, you know, drugs are icky and drug users are gross. And that's kind of what we've been taught for years and years and years. And I mean, I absolutely love that your brother referenced the J word about yes. talking about people that use drugs because that's entirely how we need to reframe the conversation. You know, if we go, if, if, if a bunch of rich people throw a party and there's a giant pile of cocaine on the table, that's live in large and that's high society. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and people that are scraping by relying on this substance that they're addicted to and hoping that they have a roof over their head the next night is are people that we we cast away but you know, these people are doing the same thing yeah i agree with you i want to i want to leave us on something light this is a, this is a hard swerve from anything we've talked about today sam you know exactly the video i'm talking about i'm so excited about this this is the, the, there was no point in today's show where it really would have fit um without <laughs> denigrating no without, it's, it's too good it, not it, to it, share it would have compromised the seriousness of the conversations we were having but this is so good so uh, so i want to dedicate this uh to one of our loyal audience members who's tuning in every single morning from dominical in costa rica so this one's going out to lazi uh and this video is absolutely remarkable you may know the televangelist kenneth 
Copeland. Uh, he, he, he's, that, he's that guy that, that, that when uh, Donald Trump lost the election back on November 3rd, he went in front of his congregation and he was kind of doing that maniacal laugh that went viral. Remember, every, he's like, everybody's telling us that Joe Biden won. Ha! <laughs> he's just he kind of went on this weird kind of tangent. He's a, you know, he's a big Trump guy anyway. Uh, so he's a preacher. And, and so he gets up on his television show. This is the guy, by the way, that, that has justified the use of all the private jets and everything. He's one of these guys, one of these televangelists. We all know them. Right. And, and so he gets up and he's, and he's making demands. He's, he's demanding uh, using the power that he can channel the higher power that he can channel. He's, he's making demands uh, to the pandemic. Um, and it caught the attention of a, of a metal guitarist. Yeah, that's right, a metal guitarist by the name of Andre Antunes. And so Andre Antunes, uh, a huge talent who you can follow on YouTube, he's got his own YouTube channel, uh, ha- has decided to put a little metal behind preacher Kenneth Copeland. And the end result is this beautiful masterpiece. Let's roll it. Because we have in the name of Jesus. Oh, Standing in the office of the prophet of God, I execute judgment on you, COVID 19. I execute judgment on you, Satan. You destroyer. You killer. You get out. You break your power. You get off this nation. I demand judgment on you. I demand. I demand. I demand a vaccination to come in. Okay, so that, my friends, is how we will wrap Tuesday's show. That is televangelist Kenneth Copeland with Andre Antunas, the metal guitarist. (laughs) Maybe the greatest thing you're going to see all week. We hope that it was worth sticking around until the wrap of this edition of Real Talk. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. The gun on.